greeting on the recording all of our Tough Mudders who are living in Texas this month and and listening in online from time to time. So greetings to the Tough Mudder team and to our friends up in the Ventura Harbor, the Taylor's Life Group, who listen in with us each week too and uh, have a life group going there and they follow along just like we do here. Appreciate them. And uh, maybe if the Thesans tune in once on their trip, they're on their way to Tennessee. They left yesterday. And so greetings out to Bob and Donna. We miss them already, don't we? Boy, just none of us are replaceable, but they're leaving a hole that God is responsible for filling. I'm going to put up on the screen here this morning the our life group definition and have you <clears throat> read it with me. Would that be all right? You know, we've got it displayed around now on these banners on the wall, and it's not complete, but it reads like this. Is it there? Yes. Okay, you don't have to look at me. Look right up there and say, at the core of Big Bear Christian Center are life groups of 3 to 15 people that meet weekly throughout Big Bear Valley. Empowered by the Holy Spirit through prayer, their purpose is to make disciples through spiritual growth, community, and evangelism, resulting in group multiplication. So Pastor Rob has us moving right around the room on these on this definition. And um, I've recommended to you uh, life group leaders this week to have that prepared to uh, hand to those in your in your life group when they come, or maybe even some blank pieces of paper and a pencil or pen, and so everybody can just write it out and begin to memorize that like John 3.16. It's not equal to the Bible, but it would help us to know the definitions that we're looking at. Our focus these last couple of weeks have been on prayer, and I, I admit to you this morning my intimidation on this subject, because I know that there are others in this room who could probably much better present the topic of prayer and I think our greater model for the issue of prayer than myself. Nonetheless, I've been chosen to be here this morning and to try and inspire or motivate you in the area of prayer and, and to uh, encourage you. And I'll do what I can. How does, how's that? And uh, you know, it's one of those moments when you want to say, like you did to your kids, you know, don't do as I do, do as I say. And. Uh, Praying, I'd like to take the sting out of praying, you know. It's, it's easy to, and I've said this before, and I've been told by other uh, pastoral leaders, if you're ever called on spontaneously to speak to a group of people, and you want to make sure you touch everybody in the room, say something about prayer. You can, Because you can talk about prayer, and everybody in the room will be convicted because their prayer life isn't strong enough. <laughs> now, how many of you would say with me this morning, your prayer life, show of hands, your prayer life could be better. See, this is what they're talking about. I, and, and I would comfort you with these words. And I've, uh, you remember Ted Rose Jr. A lot of you know Ted Rose Jr. Uh, man of God, man of prayer. I think he prays for more than 200 churches every day. Um, I think at the time I was speaking with him, he would, had spent somewhere between six and eight hours per day praying regularly. That's his consistent lifestyle. I, you know, my mind, I go, how do you get anything else done? And, and his answer would be, I get everything done. Because everything happens through prayer first. I said, how's, how's your prayer life, Ted? Because, you know, it could be better. 
I said, I'm going home now. <laughs> but how else could you accomplish the Bible in, uh, sentence where it says, pray without ceasing? How do we pray without ceasing? Well, it's not by getting six or eight hours in in a row in a day. It's by living in this constant communion with the Lord. Having a regular dialogue going on with Him. So, while I admit I think there are others who would do probably a greater presentation than myself on the issue of prayer, I think taking the sting out of it so that we don't move away from it would be a good thing. Psalm 51. And I hope that by the Spirit this morning, our spirit man, yours, mine, all of ours, will catch, not just in this message, but in the whole service, what the Spirit is saying to the church. I've heard it through the comments Pastor Rob was making. I've heard it in the songs we were singing. I heard it. I saw it demonstrated under Peggy's leadership, causing us to go and pray one for another, different generations. This is what the Spirit is saying to us this morning. And I, I hope to add my part and try and bring uh, maybe just a finishing stroke to what God is already doing by His Spirit. So I would not lift my part of the message or my part of the service any higher than the others this morning. But to say, let's look to hear. Well, that's probably the wrong. Let's listen to hear. We don't look to hear. I, I know sometimes preachers get things wrong. But... Let's listen and, and see if we can't find this common theme that is necessary for us this morning in order for the body to find life. Okay? Psalm 51. You know, this is the prayer of repentance by King David after Nathan the prophet stuck his finger in his nose pretty much and said, you're the man. You know, the, the sin of adultery with Bathsheba. And, and so I want to come to that point with him and... Here, specifically in verse 5 and 6, where he says, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin my mother conceived me. Behold, you desire, notice the you is capitalized, that's speaking of God. Okay, so he says, not just anybody, God, you desire truth in the inward parts. And in the hidden part, you will make me to know wisdom. There's a contrast here, very simply, in these two verses about what is and what is desired. What is, I was born in sin. Not only was I born into the world in sin as a direct hereditary uh, structure that came from all the way from Adam to me. I was born into sin. My mother conceived me in sin. And I've often laughed and said with you, you know, we go to the... The, to the newborn department at the hospital, look through the little window and say, isn't that the cutest little sinner you've ever seen? You know, and they're all so cute. And they're, but they're sinners. The Bible says we were born in sin. It's not a choice. It's an effect of the fallen nature of man coming all the way from the Garden of Eden. David, in the confrontation by the prophet, recognizing his sin, said, God, I was born in sin. In sin. My mother conceived me. But that's what is. But what is desired, God, is that you want truth to come into my inward parts. You want, you desire truth to come into me and reside within me. In the hidden part where no one sees but you, God, you desire to make me know wisdom. 
How is that possible? How is that exchange possible primarily? How do I come to the point where my sin is removed and dealt with and I can receive the truth of God in my inward part that will transform my life? I think it's in the verses that follow. Purge me with hyssop and I'll be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. Make me hear joy and gladness that the bones you have broken may rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out all my iniquities. Create in me a clean heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Don't cast me away from your presence. And don't take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and uphold me by your generous spirit. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners shall be converted to you. Deliver me from the guilt of bloodshed, O God, the God of my salvation. And my tongue shall sing aloud of your righteousness. Open, O Lord, open my lips and my mouth shall show forth your praise. For you do not desire sacrifice or else I would give it. You do not delight in burnt offering. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and a contrite heart. These, O God, you will not despise. God, I was brought forth in sin. All of us. The Bible says all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. When we first get here, when we first arrive, the stage is set against us for pleasing God. But his desire is that his truth would come into our inward parts and his wisdom would take residency in us and in that moment we'd be transformed and renewed and come to life in him. How is it possible? He's the one that has to create in me a clean heart. He's the one I have to be broken in front of and say, God, I am wrong and you're right. You know, the issue of repentance really means that we're agreeing with God. The prayer of repentance is an agreement prayer with God. God points his finger, if you will, and maybe that's the wrong image. I don't really like that one. You know, the big finger of God poking like this at us and shaking at us like we all done wrong. But the truth is we all have sinned and fall short of the glory. God confronts us with our sin. And in my prayer of repentance, I say, God, I agree with you. Wherein before today, I thought I was okay. I thought I was pretty good. Or not as bad as the neighbor or something, but I was all right. But now I see you've pointed out my sin to me. And your word has confronted me. The law comes and it breaks my heart and it breaks my spirit and says I've offended you. And now I agree with you. You're right and I'm wrong. And in that state of brokenness and contrition, not just a mental assent, but a a real knowing that you've become an offender of God. This psalmist tells us, King David says, that's the sacrifice that God never refuses. You might get your lamb wrong. You might get your turtle doves wrong. You might get your bushel basket not quite full on the old sacrificial demonstrations of the law. But if your heart is broken before God and your repentance is true, then he says, now here comes truth. Now here comes truth. And what did Jesus say? You'll know the truth. And the truth will make you free. A lot of us live our whole lives broken and not free. Wounded and never healed. How can we be healed? How can we know? The forgiveness of God comes, and then he begins to minister to us by truth, to break off of us. And here, here we're singing this, break every chain. Rob, Pastor Rob's praying, break these things off, generational curses. Take away the destructive things that have been put upon us from the past, and brought forward to us from our parents and our grandparents. The propagation of the lies of the devil himself. And here's the other part, when we're brought into the world, we're shaped in iniquity. 
then the enemy of our soul comes along and begins to wound as quick as he can. That little baby, that little two-year-old, that little four-year-old, that five-year-old, that ten-year-old, that fifteen-year-old, he is relentless. The Satan, the enemy of our souls, hates everything that looks like God or has any ability to connect with and worship God. That's just how he is. Jesus said John 10, right? 10, 10. I've come that you might have life to the full. But the enemy comes to steal, kill, and destroy. That's the only reason he shows up. The Bible confirms this for us over and over again, that the only time you see the devil showing up is if he has a chance to kill, steal, or destroy. And so here's this little baby shaped in iniquity. And Satan says, let's start right now. If we can kill it as an infant, let's do it. If we can get it in the womb, that's even better. If we can't get it in the womb, let's at least keep it from God. And let's wound it. Let's destroy it. Let's hurt it. Let's unleash this anger in this parent upon this unsuspecting child. And you're going to do this nurturing God's way, which I'm really very pleased about. And that's even a part of the message, if you, if you can hear it. I'm not even sure I can describe it, but I'm hearing it. Let me, let me just try and give it in a brief sentence. I believe what God wants is for the body of Christ to become the community of faith in which our smaller units and families. For me, that's life groups. It's all around us, life groups, cell groups. Smaller, life-giving demonstrations of the larger body of Christ. And I believe that inside of those life groups, we need to, at some point, we're going to see the intergenerational cell groups with kids all the way to grandparents just sitting in the living room together, loving on each other. Maybe then we'll do the whole night together. I'm not going to try and prescribe something that freaks you out right here in front of you. You know, maybe the different ones will go into different rooms during the evening. However, every generation needs the other generations to be whole. And we live in such an independent culture very individualistic culture that it shreds that possibility. And that is the war that the enemy has set against this nation to destroy the church and to undermine the body of Christ. So what does that mean? Well, it means we're going to have to have some changes of view. We're going to have to have a change in values. We're going to have to be able to look as we did this morning when we went and began to pray and say, you know what, I never thought it was my responsibility to raise every generation around me or be raised by them. However, I recognize that in God's economy, the body is the body. And one family or one life group could be a cell of it. But every cell needs all the other cells to live and create the whole body. I'm just part of something bigger than me. But in my family is where I will find healing for the woundedness that comes from being born in sin, shaped in iniquity, and affected and traumatized by the devil before I came to Christ. I appreciate these prayers we prayed this morning, and I agreed with them as we were praying. Pastor Rob was leading us, you know, break this off and crush that and push that back. And we need to do all that we can. But have you found, like I have, not to negate what I just said, but in addition to that even though when we come to Christ and we initially move across from death into life, we're translated from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of his son, Colossians chapter 1, verse 13. That even though that has transpired, there's some stuff hanging on. There's some brokenness that shows up and affects the way we live every day. It might even affect us as adults and parents to where we affect our children with it. And as we're affecting them with it, we go, oh, I so wish that was not a part of me. Why do I do that? 
Why do I say those things? Why do I act that way? You know, they were interviewing grandchildren, young kids, about you know what, what they like about grandparents. And one of the things is they, they say, I like my grandpa because he moves real slow. <laughs> you know, because parents can immediately lift a hand that fast and the kids start ducking, right? Because they're not sure if it's coming for them or not. But Grandpa, he never moves like that. He's real slow. You just know he's not going to slap you. You know, one of the things I like about my grandparents, you know, they read all the pages. They don't skip any words. Now, tell me that that, that, that awe you just gave me doesn't signify to us immediately that we connect with the truth that young people need grandparents. It's a simple connection. In the body, the younger believers need the older believers. And the ages may be varied. You have a new believer that's 55 years old, but they're still a baby in Christ. And they need to be injected into the life group, into a cell and a family where they'll be loved, cared about, spiritually adopted into a family, and really ministered to by the grace of God in all the other believers. Listen, we're on this, you're, in this congregation, you're at the edge of something all the time that is fantastic for fulfilling what God wants us to do in the scriptures. And it's so simple that we often don't even see it. Let me see if I can find my way back into my notes here. Somehow this was supposed to be about prayer, I think. You know, if prayer is the heir of the spiritual believer's life, the question should be posed to us, uh, how are you surviving? Now, let me give you a different picture. In the Garden of Eden, God says, in the day you eat that, you'll die. And the devil says, come on, die? Are you serious? Take a bite. Take a bite, and they immediately don't die in the physical. So the doubt is immediately formed. Is God a liar? I ate this. I didn't die. But that isn't what he was talking about, right? The spiritual death set in in, in immediately. And that's what we're dealing with all the time. Sin, fallen nature of man. So if prayer is the heir of a believer's life, and I say, how are you surviving? It may be that we're finding ourselves in a semblance of life without really having any kind of spiritual existence. We could be dead spiritually if we're not breathing, if we're not praying. Pray without ceasing. Some of the models and people of prayer that come to mind, Brother Andrew, uh, on, on his little booklet and his letters called Practicing the Presence of God, was a guy that worked in a kitchen like in a monastery, and he would be cutting tomatoes and washing dishes, and always, God, he would say, God, you know, I'm going to cut this one for you. Watch this. And that's how my interpretation of how he said it. I'm sure it was probably more Elizabethan English or something. But uh, you know, he was, God, how, how am I doing here? Just dialoguing. I like cutting these tomatoes. You know, so-and-so is going to eat this. And, and he's, I'm going to pray for him too. Bless him and, and, and be with him today. And while I'm washing this pot, he's just constantly talking with the Lord. He said that the hardest part of living in that environment was when the mandatory hour of prayer was put upon them. In other words, there was an hour in the day where everybody stopped everything they were doing, had to go to their room, close themselves in, and pray. 
He said, it was such an interruption to my prayer life. <laughs> he said that. He said, you know, I just, it just seems so odd to just stop everything and pray. He said, I, I pray because I'm doing everything. Praying without ceasing. Dialogue. We can do this. We'll just train ourselves and begin to remember that God's never far from us. I'll never leave you. I'll never forsake you. I've never gone anywhere. I'm present with you ever. So we can talk all the time. And I know that some of you talk more than others. I raise my hand. I say men talk on average of 10,000 words a day and women 25,000 words a day. Amen, you know. And, and the guy says, you know, why? How, how do they know that's true? The guy wants to know, how do they know that's true? And the woman says, it's easy. I speak just as many words as you, but I'm always having to repeat myself with you. <laughs> I say what? I have to say it twice. That's how come I get twice as many words. Now, let me, gosh, you know, I have like six minutes left here or something. Wow. You're going to get like part half of one of three. But see, the preacher's supposed to be able to get through. Let's put up that other slide. Let me ask you a couple, have you reflect on a couple of questions. We did this with the leaders a couple of weeks ago in a leadership meeting. And if nothing else, jot these down. These are also going to be in the life group notes this week. So you can do it there in your, in your life group as well. But it's been pointed out to me, maybe you've heard this too, that during any one decade of your life, any one ten-year period of your life, you can count your closest friend, friends on one hand. So from zero to ten, if you were to look back on your life and say, who were my best friends zero to ten? They're going to fit on one hand. From 10 to 20, who are my best friends? Well, again, they'll fit on one hand. And what do I mean by best friend? And I say it to those of us who are old enough to drive and have licenses and have friends that have cars. We'll say it that way. And you get a call at 2 o'clock in the morning from your friend who knows they can call you. And they say, hey, listen, I was, I'm in the middle of Utah. I have no clue where I'm at. It's dark. My car just blew up. I am out of money. I have no resources. Would you come and get me and bring me home? For that person, you would go out of pocket, out of schedule, call your work, get off a day or two. You would rearrange your life to go and get them. You wouldn't just say, well, let me send you a credit card. Let me ship you a buck or telegram you somebody. You wouldn't just buy your way out. You'd say, I'm on my way. I'll be leaving within five minutes. To whom's rescue would you come? Without any desire of repayment or, or needed, you don't need anything in return. I'm talking about a friend here, somebody you would give it up for. And so I pose these questions for us to reflect upon. And the reason I pose them is to point us toward Jesus himself and his prayer life. The Mount of Transfiguration is in the Synoptic Gospels. That means Matthew, Mark, and Luke. And in those Gospels, it's recorded that Jesus, after a certain period of time, turned to Peter, James, and John and said, let's go up the mountain together. If you want to see the Luke uh, passage, it's in chapter 9 of Luke. And I like Luke 
specifically, because Matthew says it one way, Mark says it almost exactly the same way of what happened. And the Matthew, I'll give you the passages if you want, Matthew chapter 17, <coughs> verses 1 to 5, and Mark chapter 9, verses 2 to 9. Matthew says, after six days, Jesus took Peter, James, and John, his brother, and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. This is when he was transfigured in front of them, if you've read this, right? And Luke says, or Mark says the same thing, but in Luke, there's an added piece. In verse 28, it says, now it came to pass about eight days after these sayings that he took Peter, John, and James and went up on the mountain to pray. I like the Luke piece. Luke's a real detail guy. He's a doctor. He's, chart, he's a chart keeper. And when you go to the doctor, he writes the chart and they say you weigh this much in your fever or whatever and they make sure it's all there so the next time you come they can refer back to it. Luke is a doctor. And so he's real meticulous in his gospel about details. And he doesn't miss this detail. Why did they go up that mountain in the first place? Because Jesus wanted to go and pray. Now, the transfiguration happened while they were there. And that's what we tend to focus on. And I'm not trying to miss that focus. I just want to know, why did Jesus take these three guys with him? Well, can I slap my own definition in here as as I'm going along and say that because in any one ten-year period of Jesus' life, he could count his closest friends on one hand. He had three. You guys, let's go. And the four of them were off. We see it. We know it's there. It's not hidden. Does that make them special? Well, they all argued about who's going to be the closest to Jesus and who's going to be most important and all that. And Jesus rebuked them for that and said, you need to be servants of all. Quit trying to compete for the high prizes here. Learn how to wash feet. And then you'll be the greatest in the kingdom. But he did have these guys as his close friends. And why did he take them with him when he was going to pray? What about you? Who are the three most important relationships in my life at this time? That's the question I want you to ask yourself. Second question is the follow-up. Who would I like to spend additional time with this week? I would imagine it's one of the three. Maybe all three. Now, I recommend at the bottom of this, don't provide the right answer. The one you think everybody else thinks you should say. In other words, answer these questions like you never, ever have to tell anybody else what the answer is. It's just for you and God. Don't be highly spiritual. I know Jesus needs to be number one. No, I'm not saying that. I'm not trying to be religious here. I'm asking you to really look deep in your life and say, who in my life is God encouraging me to have this heart connection with that when established between us will produce a more meaningful life producing relationship who in my life right now who are the top three people in your life and because of that you want to spend time with them I like posing these questions because I don't need the answers you need the answers and when I say, be free to think and not just offer up the right answer, the one that if you had to answer in class, you could be sure and get an A on. I'm asking you to answer 
from your heart. And realize that God is probably in this period of your life giving you some Peter, James, and John relationships that he wants to cement into your spirit. Why? Why is this important? Why are these people? You know, I've answered this, and I have to tell you that I can get one and two real easy. But when I get to three, there's a hundred people on the list. Because I know I'm running out of spaces. <laughs> and I just, it's hard. But it also helped me settle in my spirit who I really want to spend time with. Now, John Maxwell, I believe in his leadership books, talks about um, people who are plus one, plus two, minus one, minus two, and zeros. <laughs> it says I'm done. <laughs> what is it? No. <laughs> it's just a machine. I did invite it, though. It was very distracting. I forgot what I was saying. John Maxwell says you have plus one, plus two, minus one, minus two, and zeros in your life. People. When you're with them, they either put something in or they take something out or they're just a flat line. They don't give. They don't take away. But the truth is, how long can you spend with minus one, minus two people before you're running empty? Right? And it's not wrong and it's not rude to say, I need some plus one, plus two people in my life. And it's not wrong for us to ask of ourselves, what kind of a person am I when I'm with others? Am I taking things away all the time? Am I a negative influence or am I positive? Am I leaving something with them or am I always needy, needy, needy? And there are times when we need other people and we are the negative one or we're the negative two with the we're the takers, not the givers, and that's okay. There's a balance. But you have to be careful about who you surround yourself with all the time. It's okay to go spend time with some negative ones and negative two people, you know, and give and give and give, but you better be planning on finding the plus one, plus twos to balance out your life. And I see Jesus saying to his three guys, hey, come on, let's, let's the three of us go up the mountain and talk to the Father. Let's take some plus one, plus two guys with me. And go up and do the greatest activity in all of the universe. And that's communing with the creator. Communing with our father. I don't want to do it alone. I want to do it in community. I want to do it in family. I want to do it inside of relationship. Yes, we do it alone. But we can do it corporately too. So. Now he knew I was going to get cut short, right? So I'm supposed to depend on him and know what to do here. For me, this is a really serious subject, and, and I want to bring it into this issue of prayer as being that, being Holy Spirit empowered in our life group definition through prayer, these other things will happen. If we don't get that banner taken care of, the one that says prayer, we may as well stop on the wall there because the rest of this stuff's not going to occur. But that prayer can happen in community. Let me just read this paragraph that I wrote. Realizing from our biblical worldview that the nature of man is sinful and broken from the very beginning, how do we become whole again? Not only are we birthed in sin and into sinfulness, but after we arrive here, the enemy of our soul begins his relentless attacks for the purpose of destroying that which looks like or has the ability to know and please God. 
His woundings leave us quite in need of a Savior. And when we do come to Jesus and surrender to him our hearts, we may still be broken, wounded, and bleeding. How do we come to wholeness? How do we come to wholeness? And I was talking about that a moment ago. You know, I prayed and I gave my life to Jesus and a lot of things got taken care of. And in the prayers that Rob was praying, a lot of things get taken care of instantly. But I find there are some things that linger. And they're from those traumatic things that the enemy has done from my family or from the world and the devil that have afflicted me and taken up residency inside of me in lies. You know, maybe you grew up in a situation where your parents were always saying, you'll never amount to anything. You're just like your brother. You're just like your grandpa. You're just, and they, you know, drew that box around you and they canned you and tried to limit you in that place. And the lie set into your spirit, man, that said, that's all I'm ever good for. I'm the whipping boy. I'm the, I'm the no good. I'm the cast off. And then you come to Christ and he says, oh, but I love you and I'll always be with you. I'll never leave. I'll never forsake you. You're the most beautiful thing to me. And that, that truth just kind of bounces off of our head. You know, we, we read it and we hear it, but it, re, it deflects all the time. And then we turn around and we, and we become grandpa or we become the cast off and we act like it and we get thrown in jail or we go to prison or something else happens and, or we hurt other people. And the psalmist says, God created me a clean heart. Bring me through. Give me a new spirit and let truth come into my inward parts. Because when the truth comes in, the lie is broken. But only truth can replace the lie. So when you recognize you have a lie that's been working against your spirit man, your, your inner person that's been telling you a, a, a lie from the pit of hell about who you are, and you find a truth in here, you say, God... You desire truth in the inward parts where no man can see but you. Bring wisdom into my spirit and set me free. Others more wise on this topic than me have led me to realize that the wholeness we seek is achieved by, among other things, these four things. And you probably won't be able to write them down quick enough, but one is belonging to a family. When that's big. My interpretation right away is a life group. That's a family we can belong to. But God sets the solitary into families. Okay? And our families may be the problem in our life, our natural family. So we're not saying go back to them. Okay? Saying let God spiritually adopt you into another family. Okay? So number one, belonging to a family. Number two, by receiving and giving life. And this is what I I shared with the leaders. This is the tree of life for us, the cross. The tree of life. That's where life comes from. And there are certain things that only God can do in our lives, like bring salvation, deliverance, and healing, and sanctification. Those are all his responsibility. Those are things he does for us when we come to him at the tree of life. But over here is, you know, we've got this other little tree up here. I'll point at that. It's on all the banners. Let's call that the life group tree. And so when number two says we're supposed to receive and give life, one, this is where we receive life at the tree of life. But over here in the life groups is where we learn to give life to others. It's give and take. Receive from God and give to others. Receive from him, give to others. Receive from others. Back and forth in the life group, in the family that God places you in. Number three, recovering from the effects of trauma. 
And that is an extended process that happens inside the family. That's where you have a group of people who love you even if you're crazy. Or you act funny. Or you've got issues. Or you're a problem child. Amen. <laughs> problem child Katie says from over there. And, and, and this, you know, not to pick on her, but I can pick on any of us, myself included. But seeing as how she's volunteered, we love Katie. We don't reject her, right? And she's very open and honest with, with lots of us about the issues that she faces. And she's willing to act it out and live it out in front of us. As long as we don't reject her, the chances of her healing and her community involvement are way high. But the moment we ostracize a person, we become like the natural family that hurt wounded us. And so... How do we come to wholeness? This wholeness we seek, belonging to a family. One, receiving and giving life. Two, three, recovering from the effects of trauma that happens inside the family. Through love and acceptance, forgiveness and prayer and ministry and the word and truth. A lot of things that happen. That's why these life groups are so important. That's why being in a family is so important. It's biblical. It's for our good. And number four, contributing to a community. You have to be able to give back. After you receive, not just giving and receiving life, but being able to contribute to a community. Now, the community, my definition of that is the larger body of Christ. For us, it would be like this congregation here this morning. Inside this congregation, there are smaller groups and families, life groups that are represented here. We can have life group leaders stand up and say, those people are in my life group. And we share together intimately on a weekly basis. And praise God for, uh, we you know pointed out Karen at the, over the last weekend, Karen Cumberland, who's taking on the Thiessen cell, and the family stayed together. And I so appreciated Denny's email to me when she said, I, I believe God wants to keep our family together. I thought, this is what we're talking about. We don't want our families broken apart. We want our families to stay together because inside them we, we receive the healing we need. We find the life that comes and flows from the throne of God. We're not just playing church here anymore. You can come to a Sunday service and sit through it and do your thing, come to an altar call, let somebody pray for you, lay hands, and that's a lot of good is done. But you're only getting half the product that the Bible says is for our benefit. And if we live independent, like our culture teaches us, and this is a, I'm going to skip all the way to the bottom sentence on this set of notes. If we choose to live separately and independent of God's design and his prescription for our progress, we make ourselves to be our own God, and we remain idolaters. That's a big statement. I put, wow, that's scary at the end of my notes. Let me read it to you again. As long as we choose to live separately and independent of God's design and prescription for our progress, we make ourselves to be our own God, saying, I know better. I'll do it my way. I'll do it the culture's way. I'll do it by the world's schematic. Romans 12, 2, don't be conformed to the schematic or the designs of this world. Because they don't take you where you need to go. I mean, you need a change. We need a value shift. We need a view shift that says, wow, maybe I really do need people in my life. As long as we choose to live separately and independent of God's design and prescription for our progress, we make ourselves to be our own God and remain then idolaters. The Bible says there's no room for idolaters in heaven because there's only one God to worship. You know, it's not hard. What I'm talking about this morning isn't hard. It's actually quite simple. 
The problem is in an independent and individualistic culture, it's not easy. Hear me again. It's not hard. It's simple. But it's not easy. Because it goes against everything that our culture tells us. What do you mean, go and sit with people and pray together and be vulnerable? What do you mean, sit around in a circle once a week or more often and actually open up my heart and be honest with people? Are you kidding? They will reject me summarily. I'll be attacked and broken. But what if that didn't happen? What if the person sitting next to you said, wow, me too. Me too. I'm not quite together either. Thanks for sharing. Can we pray, you and me? Could three or four of us, can you help us? And the others in the other side of the room are going, no, we have no clue what to do with you. (laughs) But we can't commit to this. We won't abandon you. Would that be enough to get started? I think the answer is yes. I think if people will love one another, like Jesus said, hey, John the Apostle said, love one another, care for one another, do all these things together. We could find some healing, find some repair, find some wholeness. It's not hard. It's simple. It's just not easy. It takes faith to believe that God made a path to our wholeness. One, through his sacrifice. Two, by us accepting that sacrifice by faith. And then three, by letting ourselves and allowing ourselves to be assimilated into his body, living in community. Receiving and giving life while recovering from the effects of fallen nature and the traumas of Satan against us. That's it. That's as much as I can do this morning. And I haven't jumped up and down and preached a lot. This is really serious stuff for me. And here's, here's why I pointed at David first and I would come back to him. David, in First Chronicles 15, 16, 17... He brings the Ark of the Covenant back into Jerusalem. Builds a little tent. right? It's called the Tabernacle of David. There's no temple. There's no building. He puts up a fly tent kind of thing and, and brings the Ark of the Covenant back and sets it underneath it. He's so excited. He gives everybody a loaf of bread and some meat and blesses them and sends them home a cake of raisins. you know. And, and he gets excited and gives all that. His wife rejects him on the process. Remember Michael's looking out the window and goes, what a fool. This guy's dancing and spinning around in front of the Ark and she rejects him, and that costs her a little bit. But <clears throat> he gets it, gets it, the ark there, and it's wide open for everybody to access. There's a picture of grace here, if you can see it. See, the law restricted anybody from ever getting into the presence of God except for the high priest. But David just put it out on display for everybody to see. There's grace. See, God was saying, that's what I want. I want full access. I want everybody to be able to come and see me. I want everybody close. So everybody ought to be able to come. And David was way ahead of his time because we didn't get it until Jesus showed up. And said, John said the law came this way, but grace and truth came through Jesus Christ. David gets everybody happy. He goes home and sits down. And that night the Lord speaks. He says, you know, I'm going to build a temple for God. And Nathan the prophet says, yeah, you ought to do that. That's good because you've got a paneled house. You've got a nice house there, David, but God's living in a tent. He says, I'm going to build him a temple. And Nathan says, go ahead, do whatever's in your heart. But that night God speaks to Nathan and says, wait, wait, you need to go back and tell him he is not going to build me a house. I've always dwelt in tents. I've always moved around with my people wherever they've gone. I'm not confined. You can't confine me to a building. But on the other hand, here's what I'm going to do for you. And he, he says to King David, he says, there will never, ever 
fail somebody from your seed to be on the throne of Israel. Wow. Every king that will ever come will be from your seed and from your loins. I'm making a covenant and a pact with you that will last forever. And that's eternally fulfilled because Jesus is the seed of David. God makes this covenant with him and says, I've loved you, I've built you a house, i made you famous, i destroyed your enemies, I'm on your side, I'm for you. David's response is what I'm after. And if you haven't seen it, it goes like this. It says he goes into the tabernacle of David, this fly tent with the ark, and he sits down. I have it marked in my Bible in both places where he goes and he sits. Now, there aren't any chairs. Chairs are not in the furnishing of the temple. Chairs are not in the furnishing of the tabernacle of Moses. There's no chairs. It's Middle Eastern culture, which means to me, he went in and pulled up a little spot on the floor in in this tent. And in the chapter just before that, he had put in place 24-7 worship. He had all the worshipers and the guys blowing horns and smashing cymbals and playing music and worshiping and dancing. And everybody had their shift. Literally, they had 24-hour shifts, eight hours, three times, just like we do. Where the priests would come in and lead worship and sing and blow the trumpets in front of the ark. And these are ram's horns. These aren't silver trumpets. These are like, you know, the curly things would make loud noise and not very melodic. But that was their job. And so David in the middle of this, and might I use the word cacophony of sound, goes in and pulls up a spot and sits down in front of God and says, God, why me? Why would you make these promises to me? Why would you love me like this? Why do you care so much about me? How can I live for you? How can I give you everything I am? How can I surrender my heart and my completion to you? And he has this dialogue with God in the middle of this moment of worship and stuff going on. Have you ever had it where you've been here? Worship's going on, but you don't feel like you're really doing what everybody else is doing. You might even sit down and go, God, and he deals directly with you. We call that the eminence of God, the very immediate presence of God personally. And yet God does not lose his transcendency, his ability to be everywhere at once. But he's very intimate with you. David has this intimate moment. With God as he's seated on the floor in the tabernacle of David. And it's not long after this that he gets the Bathsheba deal and he has a census and he offends God. He sins against God and he has the prayer that where we start and said, God, you desire truth in the inward parts. And obviously I'm still working out of my brokenness. Come and bring truth and set me free. Create in me a clean heart. Help me start over again. Let me find your grace and your mercy. Don't kill me. Don't take the Holy Spirit from me. Bring me back into relationship with you. And he has a broken and a contrite spirit. He says, God, you will not reject these sacrifices. And if we can learn to live like this in front of each other, my goodness. The power of God can come and infiltrate the body of Christ and bring life to each one of us and heal Katie and heal me. You know, maybe yours are more obvious than mine, but I'm just as broken as the next person. Right? And in our brokenness as we come together, God can make us whole and complete. Pastor Rob was all over this and what he was exhorting. We didn't talk about this. And that's how the Holy Spirit's working. This is what the Holy Spirit's saying to the church. We need family. Not just our immediate family, because some of our immediate families are the problem. Amen? That's where our wounded and brokenness came from sometimes. So we need the family of God. We need 
we need these life groups more than we know. And it's real easy just to go to one, find one, get into it, stick with it for a while, find out if you like it or don't, and see if you can live or if it kills you or whatever. You know, doesn't like that, move to another one. You know, the leader's not going to be offended. The leader says the same thing I say, and that's everything works better if it's plugged in. So get plugged in somewhere where you can begin to give and receive life and give life. And where healing from the traumas can take place in the family. And then the family unit together can contribute to the community of God, the larger body of Christ. And that's where wholeness comes from. If you want to be whole, that's not hard to do. It's simple. just might not be easy because it's going to go against some of the stuff you got in your schedule. It's some of the stuff you got already planned in your life. It's going to interrupt you in your independence, in your individualistic living. Uh-huh. Right? Am I parking this car in the right garage? It's not convenient. But I will guarantee you this. Once you're in, it is addicting. It's addicting. When somebody threatens that family, you say, no, no, don't take away my family. I'll do anything. Don't attack my family. I've got to keep this together. This is where I receive and give life. Don't take this opportunity away from me. But if you never experienced it, you can blow it off and go to lunch today. Real easy. Okay? Father, I, I know that you've birthed this in my heart and you put it in my spirit. And I'm, I just lay this in front of you this morning. I know when we give a message, or once we're gone, we're gone and we can't take it back and we can't change it. And it's yours to deal with. So I want to commit the, the fruit of whatever's been said done here this morning to you. Lord, you've been speaking to us all morning. Through worship, through prayer, uh, through the offering, through the announcements, through the message. About living in family and living in community and becoming whole people again. Lord, we offer and I pray on our, all of our behalf here this morning. And those who are listening in, I offer to you our brokenness. It's not much. It's pretty ugly, but it's the best we have, and we pray that you will take us in our brokenness and create in us a new heart, create in us a right spirit, a steadfast spirit. Cause us to become those who receive life from you and in turn give life to others. Lord, plant us firmly in the family. And cause that family to bring life to the whole community. And may the community change the culture. In Jesus' name. Amen. I love you. I'm a crybaby, I know, but I love you. When I think of David sitting in front of the Father, here's a real simple illustration. The older I get, the more I just want to sit with my kids and talk. They go, oh, I get it now. That's what he wants. He just wants me to come sit and talk. I don't have to do anything. I just need to go be me. That's a delight. God bless you. Have a great day. See you in a life group, I hope. <laughs>